From Washington, D.C., this is the Korean American Perspectives, a new podcast presented to you by the Council of Korean Americans. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives Podcast. I'm Abraham Kim. I'm here with Jessica Lee, my co-host. How are you doing, Jessica? Hi, everyone. Thanks, Abe. We have another exciting episode uh, interviewing Sylvia Kim. She's currently the Chief Innovation Officer at Asian Pacific Community Fund, leading the National Asian American Community Foundation Project. Uh, she's actually a, grew up as a Canadian Korean. Uh, grew up in Toronto, and if any of you have seen that show, Kim's Convenience, I understand that we can get a, a peek into Sylvia's life by watching that show. Uh, but all in all seriousness, she's a Queen's University graduate, an Oxford graduate, uh, an accomplished attorney, and then moved to Orange County at an important time in Orange County's history where the demographics, the economic environment, as well as the role of the Asian American community was going through a transformation. Uh, now she is a force to be reckoned in Orange County, uh, not only as a philanthropist uh, and working with the philanthropy community, but also doing a lot of work to help economic development around the country. Over to you, Jess. Thanks, Abe. Well, Sylvia also happens to be a good friend of mine, in addition to being a CKA member and, uh, as Abe noted, a major leader within the Asian American community. And so it was such a pleasure to sit down with her at her home uh, in March of this year. You know, a lot has happened since March. You know, her organization just had its first gala on June 14th, where CKA's Eugene Choi and Carol Choi, who we interviewed for our second episode of this podcast series, uh, were honored. And so, you know, it's really interesting to see how uh, different uh, thought leaders in California are coming together to really address some of the, the, the challenges that the Asian American community is facing, ensuring resources and, and developing innovative strategies to reach more people. So this is a great episode to tune into. So we will turn over to the interview now. Thanks. My name is Jessica Lee, and I'm your host of Council of Korean Americans new podcast series called Korean American Perspectives. Today, I'm pleased to interview Sylvia Kim, Chief Innovation Officer of the Asian Pacific Community Fund, to hear about her career in nonprofit management, law, and philanthropy, as well as get her perspectives on key issues that are affecting Korean Americans today. Thank you so much for your time today, Sylvia. It's my pleasure to be here. So you're a Chief Innovation Officer of the Asian Pacific Community Fund leading the National Asian American Community Foundation Project, a new national philanthropic initiative that will amplify APCF's mission and vision across different regions in Southern California and beyond. You've also been a CKA member since 2017. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and what uh, inspired you, um, you know, perhaps starting at a young age, to work in this area of uh, public policy and philanthropy? Yes, of course. So um, I'm a Korean Canadian, um, proud to be born and raised um, in Toronto, Ontario, in Canada. 
Um, these days, you know, Toronto um, has really been put on the map or Korean Canadians have been put on the map because of a little show called Kim's Convenience. Um, I like to say, though, that I was referencing Kim's Convenience way back in the day before Netflix acquired them. <laughs> but really, uh, Kim's Convenience is really like my life experience. My parents immigrated to Canada in the late 70s, mid to late 70s. So one of the first Korean families really in the region. Um, my father had a convenience store, brought my mother over, and I was raised when they had kind of evolved to the video store status, which was a higher level status. <laughs> um, my dad went on to have a business called Video and Me, which was a distributor between small rural video stores and larger companies. Um, so I kind of grew up in that store mentality and, you know, very proud of where I come from. Specifically in Toronto, I grew up in an area called Scarborough, um, which was known as Scarlem. Um, it's a brown black neighborhood. Not a lot of Asians, actually literally no Koreans at all. Um, I always joke around that on my first day of kindergarten, uh, one of my close friends who ended up be becoming one of my close friends, a Jamaican girl, came up to me and was like, girl, there ain't no such thing as Korea. Um, and afterwards, I used to bring a map of Korea with a big star um, to prove to her that Korea existed. Um, I went on to be the only Korean in my class from kindergarten all the way to eighth grade. And so, you know, I really... I think was in a melting pot situation. You know, a lot of my best friends were Jamaican. I learned to speak a bit of Jamaican Patois, Pakistani. I know a little bit of Urdu. Um, there was a huge Chinese influx. So that was really the largest Asian American population at the time, I think, um, where I was living. Um, so I grew up with a lot of people speaking, uh, speaking Cantonese swear words. <laughs> so that was just a very, very diverse background. I would say that, you know, part of my interest in social justice and public policy was part of it is just kind of in my blood, I think. Um, and I learned more about my identity later on, about uh, my grandfather's legacy, my father's legacy or my family's legacy and kind of um, helping others in need. Um, my grandfather was a pastor and his father was actually, so my great grandfather was one of the first Christians um, who was converted in North Korea um, through the Pyongyang revival um, through Canadian Presbyterian missionaries. Um, and that was one of the reasons why they had immigrated to Canada. But I think partly it's part of who I am. The other part was maybe because I had grown up with such a diverse community of peers that I think I learned that, you know, if you don't speak up, you're not getting your share. Um, and so I think I just learned to be scrappy <laughs> and to constantly fight for things um, and to raise my voice and eventually, you know, hoping to raise that voice for others who may not have it. Those are all great skills to have if you're going to be an advocate, which you... Um, I think have shown time and again to, to be quite an effective. Um, <laughs> so it's really exciting to hear about how it all started. You know, you talked about growing up as a Korean Canadian and, you know, being a minority in a minority and having other minority groups make you feel like you weren't actually a minority, perhaps. <laughs> so, you know, how did you, um, you know, deal with that sense of duality as both a Korean and a Canadian? I mean, I think when you're a child, your understanding of cultural identity is so limited. Um, so I used to joke around that my understanding of being Korean was owning a store. Um, so literally, there were not that many Korean families. You know, all the Koreans I knew went to church. So it was all through my church, which was um, actually founded by my grandfather. It was the Tor Toronto Korean Presbyterian Church, one of the first Korean Presbyterian churches in Canada. And so that was almost like a community center. And so, you know, that's your 
understanding of Koreans. And so my understanding was, okay, Koreans have stores, like where, which intersection is your store at? <laughs> what kind of store do you have? <laughs> Why is your store next to another Korean store? <laughs> um, and also churches. And, you know, my uh, church at an early age had split, which is obviously also very common in the Korean community. And so it was like church splitting, the infighting, the community center vibe um, in the church environment. So that was really kind of my limited understanding. And I, I think really felt very proud to be Canadian. I mean, that was just, you know, it was I grew up in a real diverse, you know, I wore hanboks for Halloween. <laughs> like that was like my way of like showing and contributing to that diversity. Um, so I would say that I definitely was proud of my background and obviously the fact that I wore the hanbok or that I had the map of Korea, my parents were doing their best to, to teach me what they could. Right. But really, I would say my appreciation of kind of that duality and the importance of really embracing my Korean heritage came at a much, much later age, mm. um, which I can get into as yeah. well. No, that's perfect. Were there any important lessons or wisdom, you know, that shaped your life? Um, something that you picked up, you know, in, in, in sort of your childhood, perhaps, where that lesson stayed with you and, and it's really had a profound impact in how you see the world today? Absolutely. So I can think of kind of two lessons. And one of them, maybe I'll just continue then on my on my identity-seeking journey. <laughs> um, so, you know, I grew up in Scarborough. Like I said, Koreans tend to like run away from that area of Toronto. <laughs> but my dad um, didn't believe in expensive housing and so like to set up shop there and actually live there until he retired. And so, uh, you know, I kind of grew up, you know, fully Canadian, you know, not really, I think, having a full understanding of my identity. Um, and as it turned out, one of the first causes that I became very passionate about were Aboriginal rights issues in Canada. So the Native Canadian community, um, you know, suffered a lot of different uh, human rights violations from both the church and also the government. And one of the things that I anchored on was leadership development um, because I'd met these Native youth and were really shocked, I think, by their stories of disenfranchisement and just their depression. And actually, there was a, a crisis with um, teen suicide where teens were actually committing suicide together. It was like chain suicides. Um, so I got into that work. And one of the th first things that I did was a native identity conference. And the whole idea was, you know what? It's not a mistake that you're native or Aboriginal or Ojibwe. And you really need to embrace that and find power in that because there's no way really to move forward until you root yourself in that identity. So ironically enough, it was at one of these conferences that the keynote speaker turned to me. It was kind of like, you know, it's great. You know, actually, a lot of Koreans were involved in, um, you know, Aboriginal issues, especially the Korean church. And he was like, you know, I'm just curious, Sylvia, like everything you're saying, like, have you done that for yourself? Because you like talk it like you mean it. And I remember being like, oh, my God, like, I don't think I have because I realized that I'd never been to Korea. I had no understanding beyond my parents' like kage store experience. <laughs> I have no idea about my grandparents other than my grandfather was a pastor. I knew nothing about my mom's side. That was when actually I went to Korea for the first time and really got to understand my background. And I would say that that has forever changed my life. I think really knowing and understanding my roots and, you know, just um, how powerful that can be, the lineage that I come from, the lineage that all Koreans actually come from, you know, right. and kind of understanding that history of, you know, the Korean War and just what our grandparents went through, what our parents went through. That was when I found out that both sides of my family were originally from North Korea. Um, I found out about that very strong Christian lineage in my father's side about how they rebelled and were so resilient against all cost to help others. 
and just always about giving back. And so I think I've, I found power and empowerment in that cultural identity. And, and part of my, you know, saying since then has been, you know, cultural identity to me is really the root of community empowerment. Um, at the individual level, we need to embrace our cultural identity if we're ever going to have community empowerment. So that what I, I would say has really shaped my life. And another quick lesson to throw in there as well, um, you know, while I was doing a lot of my Aboriginal rights work, elders in the Native community, you know, always obviously have very wise things. <laughs> and, you know, it's really overwhelming when you think about the amount of injustice or the amount of work that needs to get done. And something he said to me has stayed with me ever since. Um, and he said to me, and actually not just to me, but to the whole um, room of advocates that was there. And he said, you know, don't be a savior. You know, people tend when they get into the social justice work to get the savior mentality. He's like, don't be a savior. Just choose to do one small heroic thing each and every day. And I think that really resonated with me. And I have to say, I'm still learning <laughs> what that means because, you know, it always seems like you get caught up in this mentality of wanting to do so much. Um, but I think what he was saying is, you know, you don't have to save the world. <laughs> but even if you do one small heroic thing each and every day, and that could be as small as taking care of your neighbor, carrying out your duties as a parent, being a good friend, carrying out your civic duty, whatever that small act is, it's the accumulation and culmination of those small acts, I think, that really end up making the largest impact. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about some of your recent positions and organizations where you've served um, in leadership roles, starting with the position as Orange County Regional Director at the Asian Americans Advancing Justice. And of course, I met you uh, while you were working there. And so I uh, know about your work um, and uh, we've talked about it on a personal level, what that's been like, particularly as a mother, as you said, you know, with two young kids uh, having, you know, uh, to really build an organization up, you know, that's that's no small feat. So can you walk us through what what that was like, you know, what uh, what that work meant to you and maybe your proudest accomplishment uh, during your mm -hmm. tenure there? Of course. Um, so, you know, the joke is that I went from Toronto studying international human rights into suburban Orange County. <laughs> um, so I think anyone who knows Orange County will know that that was a very difficult transition. And, you know, I thought I was moving to L.A. You know, we're flying to LAX. <laughs> um, and, you know, people joke around that OC is like the suburb of L.A., but I, I think I had no idea what I was walking into. <laughs> um, so I will say that the transition was very difficult. And um, I'm very thankful for people that connected me to Advancing Justice because I think that that role really helped me fall in love with the county. Um, and so it's funny because just when I was like, there's no international policy work here. And, you know, we were so close to actually moving to NorCal um, or actually considering a move to NorCal when I got connected to the organization and became the Orange County Regional Director. And um, really, Advancing Justice has a, a rich history of civil rights advocacy work and impact litigation um, and had done actually a lot of hate crimes work in Orange County, but there had not been a lot of community building. And also, the region of Orange County had changed so dramatically. Um, and so, as I started reading and kind of researching about Orange County, I think that's when I was like, oh my God, this is like the perfect place for me. It's a blank <laughs> canvas. Um, and actually, there was a specific report 
report called Orange County on the Cusp of Change. And I'm proud to say that one of my proudest accomplishments is that I produced a report called Transforming OC. And it was about how Asian Americans were transforming the region of OC. Um, so I would say that, you know, Orange County um, has dramatically shifted in the past decade. Um, you know, Asian Americans are the fastest growing population, of course, not just in the county, but across the country. But especially in Orange County, it became, it transformed literally from, you know, orange groves and strawberry fields or sorry, orange field and strawberry, grove, um, whichever one, um, and a predominantly Caucasian Republican county to a region that now had the third largest Asian American population in the country. And, you know, institutions just didn't know what to do with themselves. There was a complete disconnect in how to understand this community, how to help this community. And really, for me, I saw it as a huge potential where I felt like Asian Americans are becoming a force in Orange County, was going to become a force, you know, was going to have a huge impact. Um, so I think that, you know, I'm really proud of the report that we produced um, in partnership with UC Irvine. Um, but more specifically, I think I was so proud of just being able to build a movement. I think that's what it really was. I mean, I feel like it really was not on my own shoulders. The community was so ripe um, to have an organization come in and advocate on behalf of the community. And actually, the community was so hungry for that. Um, you know, so I just remember every event being sold out, you know, our council going from like 30 to over 200 people, um, just always struggling with capacity because everybody was seeking that kind of like-minded community. Um, so I would say that I'm extremely thankful to Advancing Justice for the kinds of opportunities um, that we had to build that community um, here in Orange County. But I really feel like that was just the, the beginning and that community is here to stay um, more active than ever. And, you know, as we saw in the last election, Orange County is changing. Um, it's the first time in history um, that it turned blue, every single seat turned blue. And I think that's very dramatic um, and indicative of kind of the demographic shifts and just kind of the transformational nature and force that exists here. And what motivated you to eventually leave uh, Asian Americans with Matching Justice and head to the Asian Pacific Community Fund? Um, I will say very honestly, um, something that you touched on, a lot of it was burnout. Um, you know, when you're in the thick of building an organization, you just, you know, it was like my baby, <laughs> but I had two real babies. And um, I think this is actually an issue that a lot of um, young nonprofit leaders and community leaders face um, is just the question of balance and sustainability. And I think that for me, I just did not see the sustainability of the pace that I was going at. Um, and also the organizational landscape for Asian American work is also shifting. And I think right now there's a generational uh, issue where a lot of kind of the godfathers and legacy leaders um, that had built these kind of huge organizations are in the midst of transforming and, you know, transitioning to a younger generation. Um, so that I think added stress, I think, to the work that I was doing. Um, so yes, there are multiple factors, but ultimately I would say it was really burnout and just wanting to see if I could make even a broader impact beyond Orange County as well. Would you say are some of the challenges that are um, for Korean American community in particular, um, not just in Orange County, but maybe in California more broadly, and how far do you think our community has come since the LA riots in kind of strengthening our voice and representation? 
I would say that um, one of the challenges that Korean Americans face, not only in California, but probably nationwide, is just the fragmentation. Um, you know, Korean Americans have come so far. I mean, I think about you know, my roots in Canada and how much further Korean Canadians need to go. I mean, Korean Americans have so much to be proud about, especially in California, especially in Los Angeles, the rich history of K-Town, even here in Orange County, there is a second largest population of Koreans. You know, it's, there's a rich K-Town history that's being built right now. But I think the challenge is that Koreans sometimes have too much of a micro perspective. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of perspective on, you know, taking care of my own, you know, my church. And, you know, that's about it. And I think that um, Koreans are not realizing that there is a broader dynamic at play. And if we are alone playing in our own enclave, we will never have a seat at the table. At the end of the day, we're Korean Americans. And so you kind of have to play with American rules. Um, and I think that, um, you know, one of the challenges I see is that Korean Americans are often not quite present in situations where um, there needs to be more allies. You know, are Koreans being allies to the Muslim community? Are Koreans being allies to the broader Asian American movement? Um, are Koreans being allies to African Americans? I think that um, that's kind of one of the main challenges I see. And I think sp specifically in California where there are such huge enclaves and you almost don't even need to leave the enclave. You don't even need to mix and mingle with other races. <laughs> Um, that almost makes it too comfortable for people to kind of just stay in their comfort zone and just stay in that Korean enclave and never really think about the broader impact you want to make in American society. Right. Um, so I think that's definitely a challenge. Um, but I also feel like, of course, our community has come a long way. I mean, um, after the LA riots, I mean, again, that's not necessarily my history, but um, I've just seen the incredible passion and community building that's taken place in Los Angeles um, and know that there has been incredible leadership that's kind of built institutions now um, in Los Angeles that will ensure that the kind of um, isolation that Koreans felt um, during the riots would never happen again. And I feel like we've definitely armed ourselves with more advocates, attorneys, tools, a lot of different, um, I guess, tools to really ensure that that kind of situation doesn't happen again. But um, I would say that there's still a lot of challenges that our community faces. You know, it's funny, a lot of the themes that you raised just now, I'm hearing that from other people, you know, that we've been interviewing in terms of um, both, you know, a weakness of our community, but also an opportunity. You know, the fact that we have been, you know, to date a little more insular and kind of, you know, a little bit too community uh, focused and not really being part of the larger, uh, broader, um, you know, fabric of American society, volunteering, you know, um, serving in different, you know, community organizations, um, really being out there, right. Um, and, and, you know, demanding, you know, a seat at the table, that's not really been our strength, but I do think that there is, you know, a shift, particularly, you know, as you noted, a generational shift, you know, of folks who are mm -hmm. in their thirties and forties and fifties who are not really satisfied with the status quo. They see something, you know, really broken in the way that we're currently thinking mm -hmm. about these things. And so I think we do have an opportunity that's quite unique. And maybe, as you said earlier, you know, maybe Korean Americans are, you know, really ripe, you know, for this kind of, you know, awakening um, and more uh, intentional alliance building with other communities. So it's uh, quite exciting. Um, let me shift gears a little bit and, and, and get your thoughts on philanthropy, which obviously is the focus of your work now. 
and you're doing a lot of innovative work. And so we'd love to hear about, you know, your current work um, as it relates to, you know, shoring resources and philanthropy and then get into some of the uh, maybe some specific observations around um, how Korean Americans can become more philanthropic. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to go back maybe and talk a little bit more about my transition because I will say that um, to say that I'm in philanthropy still feels really weird. <laughs> I think anyone who knows my background um, knows that I identify much more as an advocate. Um, and I didn't really get into a lot of my grassroots advocacy work around North Korea, but I will say that, you know, whether it was with Aboriginal rights um, or North Korean work or different areas of community building, um, what I've observed throughout all of them, and especially in my last role with Advancing Justice, was that you need resources. Um, you need resources, you need capital. I mean, you, your advocacy, it doesn't matter how articulate your argument is or how well written your policy paper is, Honestly, without the without the resources, it doesn't have legs. And I think, um, you know, that's been a new realization of mine of kind of understanding that um, philanthropy can actually be a powerful tool for advocacy, especially when um, you have donors and philanthropists who are interested in making a collective impact and are kind of moving beyond this very colonial mindset of just, you know, having their ego stroked, and, you know, this perpetuation of this um, frustrating cycle of nonprofits constantly having to ask for funds. I would say that that kind of generational shift right now is happening in philanthropy. And that is very exciting. Um, you know, it's a term called next gen philanthropy and philanthropists are beginning to understand that, you know, together they are much more powerful. And so specifically what I'm working on under APCF is actually a national Asian American community foundation. Um, which for many reasons um, has not yet existed. Um, but I'm very excited to say that the board that I'm working with right now is very both ambitious, but also revolutionary. Um, and I think that um, we're really looking to harness um, the power of collective philanthropy. And I think that's a very exciting thing to go back now and specifically talk about <laughs> Korean Americans. Um, well, first, I'm proud to say that there are Korean Americans on my board. Um, and that, you know, they uh, are part of this kind of pan-Asian um, inclusive movement um, to harness that collective power of philanthropy. But I would say that um, similar to what we've noted in other contexts, I think um, Koreans are actually much more philanthropic than other Asian groups because you just have to look at our churches. We build castles. We know how to build castles. In fact, we build villages. Some churches even have like an education building, you know, like an administrative building and a huge church. Like we know how to build villages. We did that through our Sunday giving. Um, we are actually very, very philanthropic. Um, but there's just like one specific target usually, which is the church. Um, so, you know, I'm proud to say that, you know, Koreans give, we absolutely give and we give to our families. We have a tradition of, you know, kind of giving um, to our elders, um, ensuring that we do everything in our power to give to our children. I think that, um, you know, maybe unlike other ethnic groups, um, giving is in our blood. But I would say that the problem lies in what we've been talking about is that insular focus and not seeing beyond our own enclave um, and kind of understanding that philanthropy is actually a powerful tool where you can ensure a seat at the table. I mean, Bill Gates doesn't get, you know, to go to the White House just because he's Bill Gates. I mean, it's because he gives, um, you know, he gives in very large sums. Um, you know, when you move up the ranks in corporate America, there's an expectation that you give. 
you know, managing partners are starting to be asked, you know, who do you give to? What boards are you on? And that's kind of, you know, I think part of American society. Um, so I think that Koreans, of course, were a newer immigrant group, and maybe it's just a part of history being made. But I think that, you know, instead of just giving sometimes to the church or to Korean community organizations, I think we also need to realize that we need to give to mainstream institutions. And we need to start seeing, you know, I don't know, the Kim School of Public Policy or the Kim School of Physical Therapy or like whatever it is. I think that there, that is kind of the struggle and the challenge um, in philanthropy, I think, with Korean Americans is that our vision sometimes is very narrow in scope and very micro. What would be the ideal outcome of the National Asian American Community Foundation? What are you trying to achieve? There are multiple things we are trying to achieve. I will say that our vision really, um, because obviously we can't conquer the world and taking that advice that we can't save the entire world. Our vision really is a unified and inclusive community of philanthropists and donors whose aim is to empower communities. And I think that is the key. I think a lot of philanthropists and donors um, like to do things at will, <laughs> um, but the key is to harness their collective giving to actually make a positive impact. And that positive impact will be seen in empowering our communities. And we've broken that down into four missional elements. One of them is amplifying our assets. So understanding that we do have assets, actually many assets that we need to start being aggressively amplifying um, and showing American community that we contribute to the economy. We have needs, but we also have assets. The uh, second thing is encouraging civic participation. This is where we have a low score. I mean, we're getting better, but we need to do better. And so encouraging civic participation, which obviously has a broad, diverse range of, of things that you can do there. And then thirdly is um, strategically responding to our needs. Um, and lastly, is strengthening our communities. But the end vision really with the NAC Foundation is what we call it, um, is really to build an institution that lasts beyond all of ours. We want that to be an institution very similar to the Jewish Community Foundation, which gives our community the gravitas um, and kind of the power behind our voice um, collectively. So you're a grant-making organization that is seeking to empower smaller organizations that are providing services or um, otherwise lifting up uh, Asian-American communities. Is that a good summary? I would say that we, we, are, we will definitely do grant-making, um, but because it is so formative, and actually that's one of the many reasons why we decided to incubate um, this idea so that we could be much more strategic and thoughtful um, in the formation of its foundation. So I would say that we are going to be grant making, but we also want to be disruptive and think about sustainable, innovative ways to actually strengthen and empower communities. So I don't think it's going to just be in traditional grant making uh, methods, thinking, for example, of social impact and impact investment options. Um, you know, what about social entrepreneurialism? Um, how can we work together with the for-profit community to actually bring sustainability to some of these organizations so that we break the cycle of uh, colonial philanthropy? Got it. It's very helpful. What advice do you have for people who might want to follow your footsteps, whether it's in law or advocacy or now as, as a head of this new initiative? Do you have any advice for some of our younger listeners who might be curious as to how you'd connect these dots? Um, I would say that, you know, don't be scared, I guess, that things are not linear. I hope that my stories have showed that nothing in my life has been linear. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, it's very circumstantial. I think that 
there is sometimes this force that wants you to kind of stay within the boundaries, um, within norms, within parameters. And I would say like break out, <laughs> break out of that. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, again, we didn't talk about this as much as I wanted to. Um, but, you know, one thing that I'm really struggling with right now, I'll tell you, is that I'm a full-time mom and a full-time employee. And I think that I'm a pretty kick-ass employee. <laughs> um, but the rules, like the, the boundaries of employment in America um, just do not allow for me to be both identities, mom and worker. And I think that that's an example of where I just want to disrupt it. You know, who's to say that moms are not as good workers? In fact, moms are the best multitaskers, the best employees I have ever hired in my life. And I'm very excited that right now my boss is actually a mom. So this is the first time I worked for a mom and it has changed my landscape in terms of what I can do with my hours and my work. And so I would say, you know, don't follow the norms, like break the norms, pave your own path. And the most important thing, of course, is knowing where you come from, drawing strength from that, because obviously we want to pay homage to that and also just understand and be really anchored in our identities. But I think once you've got that anchoring, you know, go out and change the world. I mean, like it could be, you know, as small as, you know what, I'm going to be a badass mom and a badass employee, or it could be, you know, creating new things, um, you know, putting different sectors in the room that have never been in the room together before. Um, you know, just don't follow the normal path. You know, I think that's, I, I see that a lot with the younger generation. They're, they're the most entrepreneurial, you know, digital media, social media savvy generation. Um, and I have no doubt that they will absolutely just disrupt everything that we know. Um, but, uh, you know, just don't follow, don't follow norms. Mm. <laughs> Is that too radical for <laughs> Oh, that's really good. <laughs> um, well, you kind of touched upon my next question, which had to do with balancing work and family. And I think, you know, we can have a whole hour discussion just on that topic alone because it's so loaded and there's so much to unpack. Um, and I appreciate your honesty about the challenges of trying to have it all um, because it's just there's not enough hours in the day to do that. And as a mother myself, I I too struggle with that sense of, you know, incompleteness, uh, mm -hmm. whether I'm focused on work or when I'm with my daughter. And so I think that that's something that uh, really reflects closer examination, you know, at a societal level. But talk to us a little bit about, you know, um, how, you know, you are balancing work and family. And it sounds like you're, you have some flexibility and a really understanding boss, which not many people have. <laughs> So you're, you know, I think in a very privileged position and a very unusual position, but, you know, what would you say, you know, has really been important and worked for you, you know, as you sought that balance? I think it comes down to kind of understanding yourself, right? Like a lot of it has to do with self-awareness. And like I had said in my lesson about cultural identity, I mean, really it's about identity. Like, who are you? What do you value? What's most important in your life? And if you think of it from that perspective, I mean, our families, right? Like people always say like on your deathbed, your employees or your colleagues are not going to be there. Your employer is not going to be there. It's your family. And also, you know, for me, faith um, is very critical. Um, understanding how God has designed me um, and really embracing that. So I would say that those are kind of key anchors in my life that has very recently, I would say, you know, very, very recently allowed me to reprioritize and make sure that the balance that I'm seeking puts the things that I value most at the top. 
Um, so I would say there's no secret formula. I mean, I always joke around that as a woman, we're working in a white male world. Like, you know, the whole point of feminism is not to become more like men. The whole point of feminism should be to change the system so that it becomes more like women, which is now more than 50% of the workforce. Um, you know, that to me would be, you know, why does America have zero weeks for maternity leave? You know, why do women have to pretend that they're not pregnant when they're pregnant or be worried about talking to their employer when they're pregnant or talking about their children's needs? Um, it's just, it's very backwards to me. So I think um, for me, how I achieved balance was just being unapologetic and just being like, you know what, my family is my priority. And I've had years, of course, of putting my career first and, and you know, struggling with the guilt. Um, and, you know, I have actually a side story, if I can get into it. Um, it was when my son um, was actually in first grade, which is not too long ago because he's in second grade. So that just shows how recently I've achieved balance. Um, but, you know, I was going off to D.C. for multiple conferences and actually winning various awards and really trying to actually um, make a lot of impact in both my North Korean human rights advocacy work and also my day job. And he turned to me one of these days and I'm always telling him to shush because I'm on the phone or doing emails. And he was like, you know, mommy, do you love work more than you love me? And that just really broke my heart. And I was like, you know what? What am I doing? What am I working 80 hours a week for? <laughs> like, You know, if I cannot create a, a home environment where my son doesn't believe that I love him most, then I'm failing. It doesn't matter how amazing of a lawyer or an advocate or a worker I am. And I think that really shifted my priorities dramatically. And so when I started looking for new employment, I realized that I just have to be absolutely unapologetic. Like I'm going to be mom first. If you want me and you believe in my talent and in my passion, and I trust me, I have a lot, then you're going to have to abide by my value system and my priorities. Um, so, you know, I know that not, that not everyone is lucky enough to be in a situation where they can be that unapologetic. Um, but I do hope that, you know, whoever's listening, if there are employers, um, that they can start seeing that they can create environments um, that actually allow their workers to thrive. And, you know, there's all kinds of different sayings. Actually, recently I spoke to another CK member, um, Philip Chang, who's the founder of Yogurtland. And he was, um, we were laughing about, I actually asked him for business advice, but what he had to say for young people who wanted to go into business. And he said, you know, Asians, we've got it all wrong. <laughs> he was like, you know, Asians are always told, become a professional, become a professional, become a professional. And he's, but if you really think about it, if you're a professional, you're either working for someone or working for yourself. But he was like, but if you do either of those, you never have enough time to actually achieve your dreams. Because if you're working for someone else, you don't have control over your time. And if you're working for yourself, even if you're the highest paid lawyer, you can only kill yourself by 80 hours, maybe 90, but you will never have enough time. And so he was like, the best key is to make others work for you. And I was like, that's obviously easy when you've uh, founded your land. But, uh, but that is a good philosophy, right? Like you, it's about time. And, you know, what you value and really being unapologetic and maybe finding ways for, to make others work for you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, thank you for that, Sylvia. Um, so you've laid out this picture, Sylvia, for us that, you know, I think is, is really optimistic and future oriented and egalitarian, you know, when it comes to empowering, you know, whether it's women, working moms 
or, you know, just the marginalized folks that you've, you know, seen and, and, you know, befriended. And now you're, you know, in positions where, you know, you're able to speak out, you know, on behalf of these people who, as you noted, you know, um, so ably, um, oftentimes don't have a seat at the table. So I think it's really exciting that you have a lot of uh, empathy and, and connection and a sense of mission, uh, you know, and, and I think it's really admirable that you're approaching your work so seriously and, and a lot of the things that you bring to the table are really authentic and, and come from a place of commitment. So I think that's uh, extremely exciting. Um, you know, as we close out this interview, you know, I wanted to bring this conversation back to CKA because one of the reasons we're doing these podcast interviews is not just to highlight innovative thinkers and leaders in, in, in CKA community like, like you, uh, but also to, you know, draw, um, you know, information and, you know, get your input on how CKA can advance uh, some of these things that we all care about, you know, including community empowerment. What do you think are uh, some of the ways that CKA and other civic groups can, you know, help lift the Korean American experience and, and uh, show that we're really, you know, a full member of the community? I think that CKA has a very critical role to play. Um, I talked about the fragmentation of Koreans. Um, I'm seeing this actually in the Asian American space as well. And actually, that's why, you know, the NAC Foundation, we're focusing specifically on Asian American donors and philanthropists. But we've seen that there's constantly a lack of unity when it comes to communities like ours. Um, and so I think CK actually, you know, has so much potential um, and is really needed. I mean, something national is needed <laughs> that really um, brings and unifies the Korean community and does it in a way where egos are not at play, where it's, you know, multi-generational friendly, you know, multi-experience friendly, embracing Korean Canadians like myself. Um, so I think it actually has a, has a big role to play in really bringing people together. Um, and I think that that's perhaps the stage at where it's currently at is really kind of unifying that collective force that comes when it brings the right people together and makes those connections, creates spaces where people can be um, connected, but also inspired um, and eventually motivated to take action. Um, so I think that it's kind of in this connecting phase. Um, and, you know, CK is really a young organization as well. Um, so I would consider it to be relatively formative. And so I think that it will have a strong role to play once it's been able to connect and harness that power um, in a very, I think, authentic and genuine way. Then I think that the force will just naturally be unleashed because I think when you bring people together that are like minded, who want to make a positive impact, like you can't stop them. <laughs> like that's where movements are built and momentum is, you know, strengthened. Like you can't, it's like a snowball effect. Like you won't be able to stop it. So I just think that CK, you know, just needs to find that snowball momentum. And I'm very confident that, you know, with Abe and the current team that they have, they'll be able to find that. But I think right now, perhaps, you know, it's kind of going through, you know, searching its role and its identity and where it plays. And, you know, anything national will always be overly ambitious. <laughs> um, but, you know, you do the best that you can. And I'm struggling with that myself by saying that we're a national organ. Like, are we really national? Like, I don't know. Like, we're 
birthed in Orange County, where there seems to be a dearth of philanthropist and um, philanthropic activity. But once we say national, I think that there's a, a needs to be a genuine investment and commitment to communities across the country, but especially to those that feel particularly underrepresented. And I think that um, when you look at Asian American demographics right now, there are many regions that are very similar to Orange County, where people are seeing how massively the demographic shifted, how much of a voice they need. And I think that's the case also for Korean Americans and are hungering for that connection and hungering to make that impact. Um, so I look forward to kind of seeing CK reach its full potential and also look forward to contributing as much as I can as a, as a member. That was Sylvia Kim, Chief Innovation Officer of the Asian Pacific Community Fund. Thank you so much for being with us today, Sylvia. Thank you very much for the opportunity. What a comprehensive interview. You touched on a lot of different issues with Sylvia Kim today. I really appreciate this interview. I think um, for myself, I'm taking away three things. Uh, one is I think her point about the importance of philanthropists, among, especially among Asian Americans, to work together to really amplify the impact of giving as, as our Asian American philanthropists work together uh, to target certain kinds of uh, areas of need within our community. And then secondly, I think the importance of our Asian American and particularly Korean American uh, philanthropists to think about giving outside of our community. I think it's important that we give back to the broader mainstream America, uh, but also it's an important bridging mechanism with our community, with other communities. And then finally, of course, being the CK executive director, I always appreciate uh, some great encouragement and some great ideas uh, that fellow members offer. And Sylvia obviously offered some great points at the end of her interview. So thank you for that, Jessica. Absolutely. And uh, as I said in the beginning, Sylvia happens to be a very good friend of mine. And I've uh, so enjoyed her uh, candor and the, the way she treats her career and her family with equal seriousness. And, um, you know, just encouraging uh, fellow working moms like myself to to, to hang in there. <laughs> I always find uh, incredibly uh, energizing. And so I uh, really enjoyed this time with Sylvia. And um, I'm, I'm sure that we're going to be hearing a lot more about Sylvia's leadership nationally uh, in the coming years. We look forward to your tuning in to our next episode and uh, really appreciate your support. Well, thank you very much. And again, we encourage all of you to subscribe to this podcast. You can come to our website at www.councilka.org or um, you can tune in and subscribe in any place you get your podcast from Apple Podcasts to Google Play or, or Spotify. So we look forward to your comments and as well as your subscription. Thank you very much. And we look forward to meeting you again at our next episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.